Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to Coastline. Happy Halloween. It is uh, great to be with you. It, uh, we've got just a really fun night uh, planned with the Trunk or Treat afterwards. And the whole plan is that this sermon is going to be a little bit shorter so we can set ourselves up well out there. But uh, we'll just see how that goes. Uh, I, I was supposed to write shorter than I did, and then I just... You know, I've got a big mouth. I just kept writing and writing, so I've got to jump into it. i got to tell you, when we were talking about our favorite Halloween memories, one that came up for me this week, uh, just it made me laugh at it, and I had to actually wonder if it was actually true. I started thinking about old Halloween memories, and I started remembering how when I was a kid, after I finished trick-or-treating, I'd have to come home and bring my candy, and before I could actually eat any of it, I had to give it to my mom, and she had to search it for razor blades. So you guys remember this, right? So I had this memory, right? I was like, did I actually do that? And I remember that there was some candy you didn't have to worry about. You didn't have to worry about the Snickers. But man, the Tootsie Rolls, they were prime for razor blades. So I remember taking them. My mom would inspect it. And I wasn't sure if it's real. So I called Melinda at Costco. And she was at Costco. And I said, babe, I, I have this memory. Did your mom ever have to check your candy for razor blades? She said, yes. And I also had to check the cushions in the movie theater for hypodermic needles. And I said, what? What kind of family were you in? Where you must have lived in a constant state of horror. But I was sort of remembering this. So I started Googling it like, did people used to find razor blades in candy? And here's the deal. Nobody ever did. Never. The History Channel did a huge post on this, and nobody has ever found a single reported case of there being a razor blade in anybody's candy. Why then were we all so scared of razor blades? Where did this come from, and why did every mom in America have to take on this burden and fear? And why did I have to live in fear of, like, razor blades in my mouth? So, the thinking about it goes like this. They think that what ended up happening was in 1982, there was a series of murders called the Tylenol murders, where cyanide pills were put into real bottles of Tylenol, right? Five people died from it. And so what ended up happening is that people got really worried about all prepackaged goods, and that made people worry about anything might have any sort of element to it until eventually that very real fear morphed into the very not real fear of razor blades and candy. Strange how that happens. We were afraid about something that never actually happened because of something else that did. And as a kid, it just gave you this very strange sense of physical risk that was there from adults that could get you at any time when you weren't really expecting it. If you grew up in the 80s, you grew up with that sense of physical risk from razor blades and candy, but you also grew up with a real sense of spiritual vulnerability that came from just evilness in the world. Uh, as a kid, I grew up in the 1980s absolutely convinced that heavy metal was satanic, all of it, and that it was filled with subliminal messages that would be played backwards that would influence you. Now, even if you played it backwards and didn't hear it or didn't know that it was there, by the fact that it was theoretically there, it could influence you in ways towards the demonic. And so you couldn't listen to it because it would affect you in those ways. I was told that ACDC was really uh, an acronym for Antichrist Devil Child. And, and the band Wasp was really for We Are Satan's People. I was uh, told I couldn't play Dungeons and Dragons because it involved magic. And magic, even playing with it, might open me up to real dark magic. 
I went to uh, probably three or four youth group events on Halloween where they would bring in an outside speaker who escaped from a cult. And it made me like, believe that like, there was always an occult that was of the occult that was looking to suck me in. When historians look back on this era from the 1980s, they have a term for what was happening and they call it satanic panic. That there was a constant fear that there was the devil in everything and that you might make yourself open and available to the devil through ways of, that you would never even be aware of by simply coming into contact with something like that. And so you had to live on your constant guard against anything like that getting into your life or into your heart or into your spiritual life. Uh, that hasn't totally gone away. I can remember when I was a youth pastor, a real way to upset parents was to show Harry Potter. Because if you showed your kids Harry Potter, then that was celebrating being a witch, and they might actually become, I guess, Wiccans and wizards by watching it. Now, it was okay if they watched Lord of the Rings with Gandalf. That got a pass for some reasons that I don't really know why. Harry Potter bad, Gandalf Christian. I don't know how the math worked on that. But it didn't totally go away. And even today, you see in some of the QAnon theories that exist online that there are uh, Satanists running the government who are drinking the blood of children. So we have this sense that kind of follows us around about physical vulnerability, but also of spiritual vulnerability. And when you take those things and combine them, it gives Christians a very strange uh, relationship with Halloween. In fact, this is the first time I think I've ever referred to Halloween in church. Really, it's always a harvest, this or that, because you couldn't say Halloween in church because even saying it might get you demon-possessed, I guess. I don't know. But we have this complicated relationship with it because we can recognize that there can be this element of Halloween, this evil. And if we partake and celebrate in Halloween anyway, are we making ourselves open to something evil or vulnerable to something evil and potentially influenced by something evil? And is there a chance that maybe even the Spirit of God might be quenched or limited in my life by somehow engaging with these forces of evil? So it's complicated. We as Christians don't really know what to do on Halloween, whether we should celebrate it, engage with it, avoid it. How do we actually enter into this time? Now, I think there's some biblical truth into all of these points that we've been talking about. Uh, 1 Peter 5.8, he tells us that Satan roams around like a lion who is looking for someone to devour. Ephesians 6.16 tells us that we need to put on the armor of God to extinguish the fiery arrows of the evil one. Now, if Satan is a roaring lion who wanders around, and if Satan truly shoots arrows that are of fire, they can truly damage me, both of these things, in some sort of way. And so we know that the enemy is real, and that the attacks can be harmful from him, and that our preparation is paramount, and it's important. And yet the scripture also tells us 365 times not to be afraid. And so, how do we live in the tension of those two things? How do I need to be on my guard against Satan and yet not be afraid? Where am I vulnerable and where am I not? How should I come towards this holiday of Halloween? And how do I think about where I even stand before the Lord? How do I take into account the call for caution and yet the scriptural encouragement towards courage? You know, we only have a few minutes tonight, but in summary, what I want you to hear is that God's desire for his Christian people is that our hearts would be light with light. 
Uh, they would be light with light. That as we come against holidays or even against evil presences, whatever they might be, whatever form they might take, that we're meant to be a people who aren't afraid due to the true presence of Jesus Christ alive in us and alive in the world. He doesn't want us to deny what is happening. He doesn't want us to somehow think that we need to go out and stop what is happening in the world. Rather, he wants us to trust in what he has already done and what he's already accomplished. Uh, we're going to move through a couple of different texts tonight. We're going to begin in Romans chapter 1, uh, but before we do that, let me pray. Lord, I'm so excited to go celebrate with our kids and to see the childlike laughter in their face as they get to celebrate. And Lord, we do ask that you'd protect them. Um, from evil and from a dark world, from the sin that exists in it and inside of our own hearts. Um, but Lord, would you also help each one of us to live with such a courage and faithfulness in you and a confidence in the victory that you've won, that Lord, we are able to pass that on to them tonight. With the candy, we also give them light and courage. Lord, be with us as we study the word. It's a short time, but Lord, I pray it can be rich, um, that you'd walk with us as we study. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, if you have your Bibles, Romans chapter 1. If you really want to know what kind of world we're living in, Romans 1 is a great place to go to because it describes truly the nature of every human heart uh, when it's lost in sin and when it's uh, living in kind of the full immersion of the world. In Romans 1.29, it describes the unregenerate heart, the person who does not know Jesus, who is still lost in their sin. It says this, They have become filled, meaning people who don't know Jesus, have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, Greed and depravity. They're full of envy and murder and strife, deceit and malice. They're gossips, slanders, God haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Now, this is true of a world that we see and live in. We have seen this kind of value is how we can be a very dark people. We've seen these things even present in us. When we know Jesus, we can still find ourselves fighting against some of these instincts. And if this is the nature of the human heart, if we can be bent towards these kinds of sins, then razor blades and candies shouldn't shock us. Anything is possible if this is the state of the human heart. If this is what we are capable of, if this is what, we're, what we are like apart from Jesus, then there is no sort of evil which cannot be imagined, which the human heart cannot embrace, engage, and do. Now, when we talk about sin, most of the time when we talk about it, we think of it as being like an action. It is something I'm doing, or it's a thought, or it's an emotion that is opposite of God's will for me and is opposite of God's nature. But in a very real sense, sin is also a force that kind of acts in me. That it is a force that is never static. It is always working and it's always moving. Uh, I think with sin, we are never treading water. We are either stepping out of sin or we are sinking deeper into sin. But we're never just standing still with sin. Um, I think we are familiar with the phrase, Uh, of a gateway drug. A gateway drug is a sort of small drug which its use leads you to heavier drug usage in the future. 
What there is with sin is, I think, every sin is a gateway sin, meaning it is always meant to take you to somewhere else. The point of sin is to slowly pull you down over time. And if you engage in any sin long enough, eventually that sin will not be enough for you. That sin will want to metastasize and change and grow in your life. You're never standing still. You are either stepping out of that sin due to the, due to the power of Jesus in your life, or you are sinking deeper and deeper into it. This is part of the crisis of the state of every human soul. We cannot save ourselves from our sin, and partly because we cannot stop ourselves from sinning. We find ourselves slowly getting worse over time. But, but here's the hope that the gospel brings. This, this comes out of John chapter 1. This talks about the healing that Jesus has already begun in this broken world. This is John 1, verses 1 through 4. I'll put it up here on the side screen, so you can turn in your Bible. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. When he says Word here, he's speaking of Jesus. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. And in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. There's two verses that really grabbed me uh, when I read this passage recently, and it comes out of verse 4, and it comes out of verse 9. Verse 4 says this, His life was the light of all mankind. And verse 9 says, True light that gives light to everyone. Very often when I think about Jesus and the gospel, I think that it is good news for Christians that he comes and brings a change and a presence in our life when we come to know him. But what John tells us is that he is a light that gives light to all mankind. So that due to Jesus' coming, that there is a light that shines to all mankind. And when you come to know Jesus, you step fully into that light. But Jesus has changed the nature of this world by bringing light, and everybody lives in somehow the good news of Jesus. He says it again in verse 9. He is the true light that gives light to everyone, not just to Christians, but the light of Jesus shines to each person that exists here in this world. It describes Jesus' coming as changing the nature of this planet and that we live in. That the brokenness of this world is in a way being restrained due to the gospel of Jesus coming here. That the world is not what it could have been or would have been uh, before he came. That by his coming, a lightness has come into the world that is already beginning a change in the world around us. That it is different by his coming. That there is a light that is available whether you know him or not. That his goodness has come to this world and it's beginning to grow and it's beginning to change. I think that this is so opposite of how we think about this world. It is very, very, very common for us Christians to say, well, the world is getting worse and worse and worse. It's going to hell, we would say that. It's not like it used to be. We have this very sense that somehow what it was was better than what it is right now. And when I think about this passage in John, that he is a light that has come to everyone, I just wonder if that's true. I wonder what data points we would point to to say that the world is becoming worse and worse and worse. If you think about it by so many different metrics, in a lot of ways it looks like it's actually changed for the better. Uh, if you look at child mortality, 
has dramatically improved from the last hundred years. The amount of women dying in childbirth has dramatically reduced. The amount of children who were able to become literate and enter into school instead of the workforce has completely changed. The longevity of the average human life is dramatically longer than it was a hundred years ago. Our ability to treat diseases with medicine, the availability for us to have hospitals, so many things in life are better now than they used to be. If you had gotten a disease a hundred years ago, If COVID had been around 100 years ago, you wouldn't have gone to a doctor for medicine. You would have gotten leeches put on you. Can we acknowledge that if we were to take somebody out of the year 1800 and bring them to today and said, isn't the world getting worse and worse? They would have no idea what we were talking about. And if we were to take you and to put you back into the year 1800 and say, here you go, none of us would want to stay there for long. We would miss feather mattresses, and microwaves. What do we mean when we say the world is getting worse and worse and worse? I think what we mean is somehow our sense of America as a Christian nation is slipping through our fingers and it's becoming a secular one. And look, that might be true, but that's a fairly small scope about what's happening compared to the evangelical world. And even that might not be entirely true because your 1950s America might have been better for you, but go talk to an African-American and ask if it was better for them. You see, our sense that this world is getting worse and worse. In fact, Scripture seems to be saying and said that a light has come through the coming of Jesus and it has already begun to change this world and it's sustaining this world and it's in fact transforming this world right now. That means that the way that we live in this world is completely different. You know, I, uh, as a kid, I used to go to Not Scary Farm all the time with my uh, friends. And my kids are starting to go now. And I always thought that I would get to take them to Not Scary Farm. And they would want to go with their dad and I'd show them a good time. But it turns out I'm a dork. So they want to go with their friends and I don't get to go with them anymore. But still, I went all the time and I loved it. Now, one time when I went... We wanted to go on, I think it's Grand or Bigfoot Rapids. It's like in the very back corner of the, of the park. And we were the very last people they let in line. They said, nobody else can go on this ride after you. And so by the time we actually got through the whole ride, the entire park had closed. People had left. We were the last people in. Now, when we had gone into the park, there is like smoke and spooky lights and music and monsters. But once we were walking out and the park had closed, the lights were on. The smoke was off. The monsters had their masks off and they were directing us on which way to go. Everything had changed from one moment to the next. And friends, this is what Scripture seems to describe life is for the Christian, that by coming of Jesus, this dark world that we'd once been living in, we are now escorted through it by the power of Jesus in a place where we no longer have to be afraid. The things that once terrified us, we now are able to walk through and see them for what they truly are. The Christian doesn't need to be afraid in this world. And more than that, this victory that Christ began here by his coming to earth and by his death on the cross, it is something that's continuing to grow. Romans 13, 12 says it this way. The night, it is nearly over, and the day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. He says that the light of Christ, it's still shining, And that the darkness of this world is only being defeated, and in fact it's being driven back more and more each day. And that the day is coming when that darkness is going to be completely eradicated. The point he's trying to point to in this passage is that this is not the time for us to be just engaging with sin. 
Because sin is a losing cause. It is to engage in a world of darkness that is losing to the kingdom of light that is coming. And that for us to be engaging in darkness now simply wouldn't make sense given that this victory of Jesus is so soon. It is so close that it would be like us joining the forces of darkness in the very moment when they're about to be completely defeated. What he's saying in this passage is don't give up. Redouble your efforts in godliness. Put on the armor of light. It's not the time to give up. It is, in fact, the time to fight. And that's part of the issue is sometimes I don't think we really understand where we are in the spiritual battle. What we think is happening is that the forces of evil are growing and that the forces of Christ are losing and that the forces of evil are going to grow, 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 and they're going to squeeze us as Christians until we, in our very last breath, die or gasp, and then Jesus is going to return and end all of that. That is not the story that we're in. That somehow this world is one that is falling apart on us. In fact, what we see is that through every page of the book of Revelation, Jesus sits on the throne. There is never a moment where he has lost control. There is never a moment where the power has been taken away from him. There is never a moment where he has somehow, uh, Satan has taken away the authority or the power or the leadership of this world and Jesus does not rule or reign yet. Instead, what it seems to be is that Jesus is ushering this entire world to its end and that there will be an era where it will become worse, when Satan will take reign, but it's a brief moment. I mean, even the most conservative ways that we read the book of Revelation, the tribulation, seven years. What comes after that? The thousand-year reign of Christ. If we just think about the numbers, what are we truly afraid of? What is it that we believe is happening? We think that somehow God is losing, but he is victorious, and he will win. And he is still ruling and reigning today. And it's not just the world that's being changed by Christ. He, what his desire is that our hearts would be changed as well. This, this comes out of 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, let the light shine out of darkness... He's made that light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Not only has Christ come as light to a dark world, but that light is shining inside of our hearts so that you and I are to know and live and abide with Jesus in the full realization of who he is. That our hearts are meant to be light with light. That we aren't meant to be afraid or cowering or whimpering or feeling threatened as Christians, but because the light of the gospel shines in our heart and because the light is present in this world, then we can be calmly confident in what Jesus has done. He has given us his son. Do you think he's going to lose now? And in fact, on that moment on the cross when Jesus died and rose again, Satan lost in that moment and we only continue to live in his victory from there. This world is not fully Jesus's yet. He still is laying claim to it, and yet he has taken control of it. It is his. Look, we still live in a place where sin still rules, where the promise is not yet complete, where darkness is still real, where we still need to put on the armor of God, where we still need to turn our back on sin. There is still risk, and yet there is a victory that is bigger than all of it. It's not a small one. It's an incredible victory. And so the heart of Jesus for you and the way that every one of us should approach Halloween is so that darkness is real, yet Satan is no more active on this date than he is on any other date. 
He no more, roar, no more roars around or roams around today than he does on October 30th or November 1st. But Jesus, his reign still grows. He is still winning people to Christ. And his kingdom is only going to continue to grow over time. And you're in it. And we're in it. And so the secret for you and I is to let the light of the gospel bring a lightness to our own hearts so that we can be people of victory, not people of fear. Let me pray. Lord, it's one thing to preach it, but Lord, it's another thing to do it. And Lord, we know that we live in a world where we are sold fear all the time. And Lord, that is true in pulpits as well. And yet, God, you tell us that we don't have to be afraid. You tell us to be people of courage. You want us to be aware, and you want us to be awake, but you don't want us to be terrified. Lord, would you give us the fruits of the Spirit, and may those things abound in our lives far more than the fear that we're being told on a day-to-day basis. Lord, thank you that you have already won, that the victory is yours, and we stand in that victory. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I'll see you at Trunk or Treat.